Well, kinfolk, happy Sunday. Beloveds, let us pray. Playful God, delighting in the beauty of the day. Weeping God, mourning this broken world. And powerful God, most mighty, with the word of truth, open our hearts and show us the way. Amen. At the very uh, beginning of my professional career, I worked in the Heartside neighborhood here in Grand Rapids. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. And this was uh, back before it changed. Um, and I've come to know it today. It's a quite a bit different than it was when I worked there. Uh, I'm, I'm not that old, uh, but <laughs> it was different. It was a hard place to work. And when I worked there, I used to stay at the Mel Trotter homeless shelter for men a couple nights a week. Uh, I didn't need the shelter. Um, I stayed there because the church that I worked for would compensate the organization for my presence, but it helped me to stay there and have conversations with the men who lived there and gave me some perspective. And when I went through the intake, I had to get in line, just like everybody else, in order to get in under curfew. You know, take off all your clothes, you have to take a shower, to get all your stuff together and find a cot. Um, and this time at the shelter, we're, we weren't allowed to bring backpacks in with us, but they did have um, lockers that we could use. And when I was staying there, I met a man on that hard and dusty road who knew who I was uh, and what I did for a living. And I worked at a church, and he would always bring me people that he'd met from the neighborhood. It's typically young men and women who needed some help. He was kind of a freelance social worker. I don't know if some of you know people like this out there in the world that just can't abide the presence of a person in need. Maybe you are one of those people, I don't know. And we came to a sort of relationship together, me and this gentleman, where I would let him store things in my church office that I wasn't really using, and then he would help me find the sort of people that our church could help. And one night over dinner, I asked him, um, I think uh, what, what I, at this point I think it was a very rude question, um, but I was young at the time and I didn't really have my senses all together. So after dinner, I asked him why he was homeless and staying at the mission. Now for any of you who have worked with people who are underhoused or who lack housing, you will know that one of the facets of that work that is true is that no person who's sleeping rough ever refers to themselves as homeless. Oftentimes they have a home. Sometimes they're alienated from their home. But only people who use that term, homeless, are frequently people who have a warm bed to sleep in at night. I didn't know that yet. I hadn't learned it. But he was very kind to my response. And he said that it was kind of a confusing story. He said of the mission, he said, I didn't always live here. I used to be a church pastor. He said, I was a Christian Reformed church pastor. And CRC is a big denomination here in West Michigan, as you all probably know. He told me a story about his younger life and receiving a call from Jesus Christ to go into the Heartside neighborhood and help people. And he did that. Eventually, he spent so much time in that neighborhood that... Uh, well, he no longer felt compelled to preach in his church on Sunday, and so he would preach at the different missions. He couldn't shake it. He couldn't shake that call. Eventually, he sold his house and gave away his possessions. 
He'd spent so much time at that mission that it felt perfectly natural to live there. And so he did. I think a lot about that man, that pastor, assimilating or habituating or naturalizing into that economic refugee camp. That's what they are, our so-called homeless shelters. They're refugee camps filled with people fleeing an economic disaster that they didn't create, but that has taken everything from them. The fact that America abides such refugee camps in such great numbers in so many cities is something that confuses me. But I saw in him a reflection of a person that I thought maybe someday I could become, more enjoy becoming. And I was already staying in my car, going to graduate school. My successful uh, free market capitalist older brother would chastise me, shouting at me from more than a thousand miles away, you've got to stop living like a nomad. Get your feet underneath you. Well, mending nets, I guess I was, catching fish, doing what I could, doing the things that are expected of us. I suddenly were struck sometimes on the outside by this curious force. It says, won't let us go. It says, follow me. And if you do so, I'm going to show you some stuff that you might not believe. That's what happened today in the Gospel lesson. Was this a wise investment? Is it going to maximize the return on our profits? <laughs> I don't know. I wonder what would have happened to me if I'd followed that strange man in the Heartside neighborhood into the margins of that refugee camp forever. There are two abandonments that take place in our gospel story today. I like to read it in Matthew, read it also in Luke, read them together. They both tell the story. They both shine a different light on the story. There are two abdications in the story. And I think that they're meant to be broad enough to help us visualize ourselves, or kind of cast ourselves in the movie, regardless of who we are or where we're at in life. Two calls that take place there on the shore of Sea of Galilee. Lake Gennesaret. I'm going to pull them, uh, catch them up out of the story, like wriggling fish. We can't leave them outside of context, of course, because as the old Southern Baptist preachers say, Scripture taken out of context is pretext. A verse taken out of context is going to die as quickly as a fish taken out of water. <clears throat> but first, as Jesus is walking by the sea, he, he spies these two brothers, Peter and Andrew. And they're fishermen, mending their nets. And eventually he says to them, follow me, I'm going to make you fish for people. Or as we have it today, I'll make you catch people. They did. They left their stuff right there on the shore and followed him. They didn't even lock up their boats or whatever. <laughs> this is the first abdication, the first abandonment. They, they've abandoned their trade, maybe? I don't know. I mean, what have they done? They're obviously... Uh, successful fishermen, they got their own boats, and now they're just accepted an entry-level position at Jesus Incorporated. Uh, Jesus gives them this curious proposition. He says, he seems to say to them, this is what I hear in their conversation, hey Peter and Andrew, what do you guys do for a living? And I say, well look, we're fishermen. Jesus says, that is great news. I need two fishermen. It's about framing. It's, it, I think 
you have a sense of call. You know what it is that you enjoy doing. The Latin word for call is vocare. Vocare means to, to call or calling. It's where we get the word vocation. Your vocation. Peter and Andrew are fishermen. Well, are they good fishermen? Maybe they're lousy fishermen. That's why they want to be disciples. You know, try something else. I don't think so. It's, it says in the story they actually do pretty good. Um, and this revolutionary healer comes into their life, unlike anyone they've met. Does he ask them to abandon everything in their lives to follow him? You could say that, but it doesn't really see that. He, he wants them to be fishermen. I, I think that that's important to Jesus that they're fishermen. They don't lose that sense of purpose. Their call remains the same, to fish. And sometimes, sometimes the capitalism and the market doesn't have a lot of room for call. We commodify things. Sometimes we do reduce it to a wage. We typically count anybody's call as just sort of an economic discount for the value of labor. Um, this is important. Public school teachers, for example. Uh, there are very powerful people on the news right now that are decrying a shortage of teachers in America. That is a crisis. We don't have enough teachers. Where could they be? Where are all these teachers hiding? <laughs> Please allow me to assure you there's absolutely no shortage of teachers in America. What's happened uh, is there's a shortage of salaries in America because we've let somebody's call, somebody's passion to teach replace an equitable share of the excess wealth that's produced by public education. Same sort of thing happens to artists and musicians know all about this. You follow a call, and sometimes it's not profitable. Jesus doesn't want Andrew and Peter to abandon their passion for fishing. He wants them to use the skills that they have for his movement. I think he could have reasoned that he needed two fishermen because they know how to operate on instinct. That's important if you fish. They're familiar with danger. Uh, he thinks they're willing to take intelligent risks. And maybe he thinks, if you just look at the fact, I'm going to be riding around in some boats. It, it couldn't hurt to have a couple of people around who know how to sail. Following a movement, applying our passions to the world's brokenness, is, doesn't require you to abandon your vocation, who you are, what you do. It may ask you to leave behind the things that are profitable and familiar, but you can be a fisherman for peace and justice. You can be an accountant. You can be a CPA for the environment. You can be an attorney for the oppressed. Be a chef for the hungry. Your skills as a salesperson uh, are critically important to the gospel because the gospel needs to be communicated with urgency. You understand? You know, pastors are. Pastors are you know, sort of um, like the hospital janitors of the mind and the heart. This was explained to me by a man I attended seminary with who was a part-time pastor, and another part-time he was a hospital janitor. And it was how he was paying for graduate school. He said, you know, if you're a janitor, you've got to deal with a lot of toilets. And toilets don't always function as they're designed, so you're going to be dealing with other people's stuff. He said, you've got to deal with it. You're going to get some of it on you. It's got to be done. Sometimes that's what pastors do. They're asked to mess with other people's mess. But you can bend your vocation toward the movement. Jesus can make fishermen into apostles, saints and martyrs. He can definitely do something amazing, whatever it is, in your lived experience. Now, I did mention at the beginning that there were two abandonments, and I want to touch briefly on the second one because it's important. I'd like to skip right past it, but it's important. 
it's told in the Matthew story of this book. Zebedee and uh, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John are in the boat with their father, named Zebedee, mending their nets. And when Jesus calls them, immediately they left the boat, right? just like Peter and his brother. And they left their father and followed him. Okay. One of the things that it's important to understand about the Bible and the gospel is how spiritual relatedness, our spiritual kinship, is almost always more important to God than our biological kinship. There's an argument to be made that our spiritual kinship is one of the only forms that God recognizes. But knowing something and living it out are totally different species of fish. I know that there are some of you who are hearing my words today who do not have relationships with your biological kin. You have a fictive kinship or an intentional family, or we use a lot of different words for it. And I know that some of you are struggling in your relationship with your biological kinfolk. The gospel lesson today involves struggle like that. Outside of a few rare circumstances in human history, uh, our families are large, expansive, involving a lot of different people. Jesus' family was big, big. Had all sorts of different people in it. We aren't programmed, really. We didn't evolve for nuclear families, so-called nuclear families. That was an invention in the 1950s and 60s. To our ancestors, the idea of two people trying to raise an entire human being is, would be impossible. How, how can two people raise a whole human being? You've got to have like six or seven, maybe eight. You've got to have grandmas and grandpas, a couple of uncles. You've got to have the cousin that's strangely older than all the other cousins. Everybody's got one cousin like that. And then you've got Frank and Sandy. They're not related to us, but they're the neighbors. They've lived next door forever and ever. List goes on, all living together, raising children together. That's the family that Jesus is calling these two men to. And to be part of that family, they leave their father, Zebedee. And I think it wouldn't have been a radical choice for them to make, and I like to believe that their father stood by with pride as he saw his two sons joining this new family, blossoming to the light of the sun. So our calling sometimes takes us out of the marketplace, and sometimes it can call us away from our biological family. But that has always been the case in the history of Christian saints and martyrs. When God called Martin Luther King Jr., they called him to tell the truth about income inequality in America, put his life at risk. He was 39 years old. At the time of his death, he was a father to four children. They were aged 13, 11, 7, and 5. But Jesus called Martin to follow him. Jesus called to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German resistance pastor. And Reverend Bonhoeffer left his church and his beloved friends and followed Jesus Christ. Even into the cell and incarceration in Flossenburg concentration camp. To what end? Well, as the pious German Lutheran SS soldiers waited reverently for Reverend Bonhoeffer to complete his Sunday sermon, preached to the other prisoners at the camp, and then they took him by his shoulders. And as he was marched past and away from his friend, an English prisoner named Payne Best, Bonhoeffer said to him his final words, This is the end, and for me, the beginning of life.
Martin Luther King said before he was crucified on the crosshairs of an American rifle, we have difficult days ahead. Doesn't matter with me. I've seen the mountaintop. To follow Jesus means to accept a certain threshold of abdication. First, to take your vocation, your call, the thing about you that is special and unique, fills you with passion, and apply it to the brokenness of the world. The thing that you do so well, to use it as a weapon against the forces of evil, empire, racism, commodification of human life, desecration of the planet Earth, whatever it is called, God's own precious vineyard, to apply your vocation to the movement that you've been called to. And the second is this, to hold in the palm of your hand the reality that you might be asked to leave behind the things of the world that you love most. That second one is not an easy thing to make soft with a sermon, but I would be lying by omission if I didn't name it. All right, folks, out there right now in the world is still triage. Out there is a planet on an operating table, a boat full of holes, and a building on fire, a lost child, a freezing hearth. There's a hungry stranger, a desperate soldier, a world sick with sin, and no shortage of want. And then there is you, beloved of God, most precious creation of God. You. Mend your nets. Listen for the call. You have everything that you need. You really do. We all have everything that we need, and more. Everything. Amen? Amen.